Uh, welcome back to our second panel. Uh, I'm Emma Ashford. I'm a research fellow here at the Cato Institute. And our second panel is going to focus on the myths of primacy, geography, energy, and democracy. Um, and we've got two papers, uh, three panelists, and our discussant. Um, and I'll just introduce them very quickly. Um, Alex Downs uh, is an associate professor of political science and international affairs at the George Washington University, the author of a recent book, Targeting Civilians in War, and he previously taught at Duke University. Eugene Goltz, you have already met uh, in our previous panel, so I won't introduce him again, but I'll be interested to hear what he has to say, particularly on energy issues. Um, Charles Glazer is a professor of political science and international affairs, also at George Washington University. He's the director of the Elliott School's Institute for Security and Conflict Studies. Um, and then last but not least, we have Jonathan Monson, who is a lecturer in international relations in the Department of Political Science at University College of London. And he previously taught at the University of Oklahoma and the London School of Economics. Um, so with that said, I will go ahead and turn it over to Dr. Downs uh, to get us started. Uh, okay, thank you so much for uh, being here this morning. Uh, I feel lucky to be here as well, given our two kids under two. Uh, so forgive me if I sort of uh, lapse into incoherence, but hopefully I'll, I'll be able to get through this uh, with no problem. Uh, so uh, thanks again for being here. So uh, uh, I'm going to talk for a while, and then my co-conspirator, uh, John Monton, will finish it off. Um, basically, what are we interested in in the, the, the research project that we're engaged in here? We're basically looking at whether uh, uh, targets of foreign imposed regime change by democracies actually democratize. Right? So when a democracy intervenes uh, uh, and overthrows a foreign government, what happens in that target state? Does it, uh, can it become a democracy? And Broader than that, under what conditions might that be the case, right? Is it, is it just a yes or no question, or are there conditions that would make it more or less likely where uh, uh, democratization might occur after a foreign imposed regime change? And obviously, given the topic of the day here, we're interested also in the US experience along these lines, since as you'll see later, the United States has been quite active uh, in this regard historically. Just to preview our answers to these three questions, does foreign imposed regime change by a democracy lead to democratization? On average, the answer is no, right? And the reason is that, well, democracies don't always promote democracy when they intervene, as I'll make clear later. And when they do, it doesn't always work. Um, and so the question becomes, under what conditions uh, might success be more or less likely? Um, and we basically argue that uh, there's a combination of two things going on. First, of of course, the intervener has to try and promote democratic change, right? But target conditions inside the country where the regime change is occurring matter greatly for success. And we basically stress several, one having to do with economic development, right? Richer uh, countries have advantages when it comes to democratization, ethnic homogeneity, uh, and past experience with, with democracy. And the experience of the United States in this regard with promoting democracy uh, with the use of military force is really no different than uh, that of other democracies that have also tried this. Um, uh, and 
So you can think of, and I'll show later some of the cases that we're, we're discussing here, right? For the West Germanys and Japans that you can think of, places where there's been success, you can also think of the Afghanistans and the Iraqs and the Libyas and in an earlier era, the Dominican Republics, the Nicaraguas and so on, right? Um, let me just sort of preview how we're gonna proceed here. Um, I'm gonna say a few words about the research program on regime change that's been going on, especially in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. Uh, and then say, uh, uh, summarize quickly the debate about forceful democratization, right? Can, can democracy be spread at the point of bayonets? Then I'll just sort of go over our, quickly our argument uh, data and, and findings. Uh, Professor Montan will step in and talk about some contemporary applications, of which uh, there are some, to, to think about, and then he will conclude and wrap up. So, the study of foreign imposed regime change, right? This initially grew out of a debate about war recurrence, right? And ceasefire duration that was happening in the international relations literature in the late 90s and 2000s. Uh, Paige Fortna's book on UN um, on peacekeeping was a big contribution here. Um, uh, and the, the basic message that came out of this literature was that FERC was good for peace, right? Between two states that had fought a war, if one inflicted a regime change on the other, right, it could change the, the elites in that state, it could uh, make them more friendly to, to yourself, and then that would, uh, you could live happily ever after, after that. Right, this research program gained momentum because of current events, or the, what were then current events, uh, uh, in Iraq in 2003. And also kind of shifted direction from interstate relations to things that happen inside uh, target states that experience regime change. Right, so there's been a bunch of work done on civil war, finding that basically countries that are experience forceful regime change from the outside are more likely to have civil wars. Uh, leaders that are imposed from the outside tend not to last uh, very long and meet somewhat bitter fates. Um, Regime change has also been found to be associated with elevated likelihood of mass killings, so large-scale killing of civilians. Um, this work that I'm talking about now on democratization. Um, uh, the, the, and then there's the sort of been a recent return to this question of interstate relations, kind of questioning the earlier sort of positive finding, right? One, has, one sort of piece of literature has looked at trade, countries that experience regime change by the United States. Uh, does that lead to increased trade? And the finding was no, it actually reduces uh, trade. So the sort of economic narrative that regime change is good for business is not, is not, uh, is not borne out in that uh, research. Uh, uh, with a co-author, I've looked at the question of what happens, uh, do states that, uh, uh, does a state that uh, inflicts a regime change in either country, are those too likely to have military conflict afterwards, which is broader than the sort of earlier study, which was related only participants in wars. Uh, and the finding there is a yes, the bulk of regime changes are associated with increased likelihood of conflict, not decreased likelihood of conflict afterwards. And then there's research going on into sort of the quality of interstate relations, uh, making the argument that it's actually quite difficult to uh, produce reliable client states uh, through, through the tool of regime change. Let me turn now to the, the specific question uh, that we're talking about today, which is the question of democratization, right? In this literature, we basically parse it into three chunks, right? Optimists, pessimists, and sort of in between, conditionless, right? So the optimist position is kind of characterized by an, you know, uh, a view that the United States or other countries can go, go forth, um, overthrow governments, bring democracy to places that have not experienced democracy before. This obviously 
received a big boost under the George W. Bush administration. Uh, it's been a neoconservative view. Um, some academics, though, have, have sort of made this argument, too, saying that, well, yes, sometimes you dislodging uh, autocratic leaders takes the use of force, and you can get rid of bad elites, uh, and uh, you can maybe get democratization afterwards. Pessimists draw on a lot of recent cases and say, hey, not so fast. Uh, there's just not a lot of good evidence out there that this, uh, that this works uh, on average. Um, drawing both on recent cases and then sort of early 20th century cases in the, in the, in the Caribbean and Central America and so forth. The sort of big work here was by uh, uh, Bruce Buena Mosquita and George Downs, no relation, um, who made this argument that basically democracies, when they intervene abroad, don't actually want to spread democracy. They want to do what's good for their, that leader's re-election. Right, so the last thing you want to do is put in another Democrat in another state who has to respond to his or her own constituency and not you. What you want is a nice, pliable, strong man or strong woman who will take direction from you and therefore meet your foreign policy goals and get you reelected. Right? Then there's a, a, a bunch of sort of conditionalists. Well, it's not just all yes, it's not all bad, it's, it depends. Right? And so, uh, Studies uh, at, at RAND and other places have made an argument that, well, what really matters is you gotta try really hard. You gotta throw a lot of money, you gotta throw a lot of troops at the problem, and that will get you success. Um, well, of course, you have to try, right? If you don't have pro-democracy intentions, that's not gonna get you anything. Uh, some have said, well, you have to have democracy in the region, right? Because they're putting stock in these sort of uh, arguments that uh, democracy will flourish where there are other democracies out there nearby to help them. Uh, and then this argument I'm gonna talk a little bit more about here <clears throat> about things uh, having to do with the target state and whether they have sort of the preconditions that, uh, that a lot of literature has found to be associated with successful democracy. All right, so how do we see this debate, right? The optimists, there's not a lot of successful cases to point to. There haven't been a lot of sort of rigorous studies produced making this argument. There's been a lot of generalization from a handful of cases or um, assertions about the ability to transplant democracy to anywhere at any time. Pessimists, though, of course, they ignore all these cases, especially the Bueno de Mesquita and Down study, um, where democracies do try to install democracy. And these are actually not rare, uh, but it doesn't always work. So if they're right, you actually are never doing this. And we see, actually, democracies are doing this, uh, and much more recently. Um, there's also a pretty loose operationalization, to use a, a crazy political science word, um, of what an intervention is, right? And it's often defined in a very minimal way, um, not even coming close to uh, regime change. Um, conditionalists, right, these studies have looked primarily at other things, not actually overthrowing governments. They've looked at related things like nation building or like imposed democracy, not regime changes. Also suffering from an overly broad in, uh, uh, definition of what an intervention is. Nation building doesn't necessarily entail regime changes is what we're interested in. And in this concept of imposed democracies, this is when a, a country supposedly uh, goes in and leaves a democracy behind, those are almost all uh, former colonies, right? So the imperial power leaves, leaves a democratic uh, polity there, but that's really not what we're talking about these days. We're talking about going into an existing state, changing the government, and trying to exit uh, and having that state be democratic. Okay, 
So as you'll see, we are firmly implanted in the conditionalist uh, argument. We basically say you need a couple of things here uh, to get successful democratization after regime change. First of all, you have to try, right? The intervener has to do things to promote democratic institutions, right? Write a, help write a constitution, help hold elections, right? Build institutions in the country, right? We call these institutional uh, foreign imposed regime changes for obvious reasons, right? You can't just swap out one autocratic leader with another one and expect democracy to bloom uh, in, in the aftermath, right? And one thing that kind of surprised me in this research was, well, this is actually not that common. Democracies, uh, until relatively recently, didn't do this very often, right? Only about one quarter to, to one third of democratic interventions actually try to promote democracy. It seems ubiquitous now, but it hasn't always been. Then interacting with this are the conditions in the target state. Right. Economic development, a developed middle class, greater access to education, higher personal incomes, whoa, um, hetero societal heterogeneity, right? Uh, the more sort of diversity uh, in the country, the more difficult it is to build a democratic polity. Previous experience with Republican institutions or democratic institutions, things that have been built before uh, that you can then uh, build off of when you try to, uh, to uh, uh, build democracy later, right? And this is particularly important in some of the places the United States has intervened recently where the, the leader has sort of de-institutionalized the country, take a Libya or an Iraq where you've had personalist dictators. Really, the institution was Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi. Um, it's also worth noting that other literature has shown that intervening and in overthrowing governments is associated with an increased risk of civil war, which in turn, uh, especially in countries that are poor and diverse, which in turn can further make it hard to achieve uh, democratic successes. Okay, so quickly, what do we mean by foreign imposed regime change? This is the forcible or coerced removal of the effective leader of another state. So this regime change uh, language is a little imprecise. It's really, you, you at least have to change the leader. You can also change the institutions of a state that already existed and continues to exist. We identified about 70 of these. Uh, our study covers the 20th century. Roughly half of them were by democracies, the other a little more than half by democracies, uh, the other half by non-democracies. Of those roughly, what, 37 cases, uh, not that many, only about a quarter uh, were of the institutional variety that we're talking about. So you end up with a relatively small uh, number of cases to look at. Um, and the US participated in a lot of these, right? Many of these are multilateral, right? So you don't, you get more than one country involved, but the United States was involved roughly three quarters of the time uh, when, uh, when, this, uh, when democracies did this. So what do we mean by democratization? Well, there's various ways to, to look at this. Um, you can say, well, do they get a little more democratic or a little less democratic? We're, looked at that, we can also look at whether the country transitions to become a consolidated democracy. And we can go into how we define that more in the, in the Q&A if you really care. So before I show you that, the first finding to take away is that when, you, when a democracy just goes in and changes a leader without dealing with the institutions at all, you don't get much in the way of, of democratization. It's basically the same as when a non-democracy intervenes, right? When they do try to promote institutions, then these preconditions come into play. And I wanted to put up this uh, slide, which basically shows you the cases, that those 10 cases and a little more, a few more that are 
uh, sort of up in the area. And you can sort of eyeball them and go, you know, this argument about preconditions might carry some weight. So the, the bolded cases are more successful, right? The Japans, uh, West Germany's, Panama's, mostly uh, for the day quite uh, well-off places, quite homogeneous places. Some of them had had previous democracy in place. Haiti's kind of the, the outlier here. Right? That was an interesting case because it's a restoration of a previous democracy, uh, which then didn't take. They backslid after about four or five years uh, to become a, an autocracy again. And the places where it doesn't succeed are these sort of poorer, more diverse uh, places. Um, I should say at the bottom there, the, the cases my co-author is going to talk about here in a minute, um, a lot of these are hard to judge right now because the sort of places that try and rank how democratic you are have a very hard time actually coding whether they are democracies or not. Um, I wanted to show you some pretty pictures, right, which kind of t show you what I just said, right? So this, this shows you that as a country becomes richer right, along this axis and experiences an institutional FERC, right, that tries to promote democracy, the chance that it succeeds goes up. Right, as the country becomes, becomes more wealthy. Right? So there's statistics underlying this. I'm trying to shield you from, from most of that. But this is sort of showing you, when you look at all countries in the 20th century that experience intervention and don't, ones that uh, experience democracy promoting FERCs, uh, it's going to be more likely to succeed as the country is wealthier. It's going very, to be very unlikely to succeed as the country gets more diverse. Right? This is ethnic heterogeneity going along this axis. right? And as you see, down here, if you're the Netherlands right, and with a very homogeneous population, you're likely to democratize after an institutional FERC. But as you get more diverse, these confidence intervals spread out like crazy. You can't distinguish any effect. right? Um, this shows you the, the same two things I just showed you, but when you intervene and just change the leader and don't change the institutions, right? these are leadership FERCs, basically a flat line, nothing going on there. As you get wealthier and as you get more uh, heterogeneous, the effect declines, but it's always statistically insignificant. So you basically can't say that there's any, any change in likelihood whatsoever there. Um, in terms of previous experience with democracy, that bolded upper left uh, corner there shows you that the, the likelihood of success for an institute for a, a FERC is 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 highest when uh, you've had some previous experience with democracy and the intervener is trying to promote democracy at the same time. With that, uh, I'm going to hand it over to John. Uh, uh. Uh, okay, thanks uh, very much, everyone. This clicker works? Yes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> uh, well, as Alex mentioned, um, we've got some uh, recent cases of um, Afghanistan, um, Iraq, um, and Libya um, that were uh, not included in our analysis of the historical data um, for lack of data. But it should not surprise you to learn that we basically think these cases are consistent with our argument. They basically support our um, theory. Um, in the case, uh, very quickly, in the case of um, Afghanistan and Iraq, we argue, of course, that we pursued essentially an institutional strategy in these cases that we 
both the U.S. both overthrew the regimes and uh, attempted to oversee building new democratic institutions. But these countries lacked these key domestic preconditions Alex was talking about. They are poor, ethnically diverse, with little prior experience with um, democracy. Um, in both cases, regime, train, uh, regime change also triggered civil conflicts that uh, further hindered democratic consolidation, to put it mildly. Um, and the outcomes in these cases basically were um, some um, steps towards minimal, what you might think of as a minimal um, electoral democracy. There have been, of course, elections conducted um, in Iraq and Afghanistan in the past decade. But I think it's hard to argue um, against the view that these countries have failed to establish stable, inclusive democratic regimes characterized by limits on executive power or widespread political participation, what we think of as the key features of, um, of consolidated democracy. And if you do look at some um, data, some measures, um, like those uh, rankings collected by Freedom House, um, Iraq and Afghanistan are barely more democratic than they were prior to the US invasions. I think they went from a seven to a six on their scale. So if you think about all the costs that the US paid for these interventions, we basically moved them one point on a seven point scale, at least according to this one um, data point. Um, in Libya, we argue there was a similar pattern. There were some initial steps towards um, electoral democracy, uh, but then uh, reverted back to a civil conflict and state failure um, even, even more quickly. Um, in the case of Syria, so Syria um, is an interesting case. And here I'm, I'm kind of speaking for myself since I haven't discussed this extensively with Alex, so feel free to disagree. Um, I think basically you could argue that the Obama administration is pursuing essentially a mixed strategy with respect to regime change here. Uh, Obama has said Assad must go. We've been giving aid and support to insurgent groups, but at the same time he's resisted any kind of wider intervention to directly overthrow um, the Assad regime. Um, we think even if that were to happen, um, either through the result of foreign intervention or domestic intervention or domestic, um, the domestic conflict, Syria is not really a good case for post-intervention democracy. It has all the factors that we've associated with past failure, ethnic um, diversity, little prior democratic experience, um, a recent history of um, violent conflict. In fact, I think you could make it a very persuasive argument that the US commitment to the goal of regime change in Syria, um, at least uh, our public commitment, is now an obstacle to achieving other US goals, like um, containing and defeating ISIS, or even trying to find some kind of negotiated settlement that might stem the worst humanitarian aspects of the crisis there, but would preserve a post-conflict role for Assad. So I think at some point, hopefully the US, if I think the US should, um, if the US were to, public, uh, to roll back its public commitment to regime change, at least in Syria, uh, we'd probably be uh, better off. Um, very quickly, just to summarize, um, these are um, Alex's, just very quickly to summarize Alex's main points. Um, using military force um, to promote democracy abroad is a risky business, uh, tricky business, <laughs> tricky business. Uh, we argue it's essentially the combination of these two factors that Alex described. I think we've also found this out basically the hard way um, in these recent cases, even though we didn't include them in our um, data analysis. Let me quickly summarize just by saying a few things about what we think the policy implications of this are. First of all, I think it's pretty clear that the balance of evidence, at least in our study, favors um, a strategy of restraint. Um, to follow Edward Rhodes's analogy from the last panel, there's not much of a baby here to protect. I mean, it's not to say that this foreign policy tool is successful um, some, some proportion of the time that it's worth preserving. The, the actual successes here are, um, are quite rare. Um, regime change is also tempting. It seems to, it can be in many conflicts uh, a low cost 
low-risk way of dealing with um, intransigent countries. But on average, on balance, the historical data, I think, is pretty clear here that imposed regime change is a poor mechanism for spurring democratic change. Um, when we do attempt it, I think the evidence here also suggests that we should focus on institutions um, and not leaders. The least effective strategy, at least in our um, look at the historical data, are what we call decapitation strategies. That is, strategies that target individual leaders to remove them from power but leave the wider regimes intact. That is, don't try to oversee building new um, democratic institutions. Those types of regime, regime changes, either through backing a domestic coup or through air power or whatever it might be, again, may seem attractive policy options. They're low cost um, and low risk, at least the United States, not necessarily for the people of the country, those countries. Um, but these are the least likely to succeed, even when the domestic preconditions Alex was describing are favorable in those countries. In fact, I don't think that we have a single example of a leadership change, that is, where we just overthrew a leader but did not take any additional steps leading to a consolidated um, democracy. And the final point is what we call um, a kind of paradox of foreign-imposed regime change, and that is that those states that are most vulnerable to imposed regime change by external actors are the least likely to democratize following interventions. Weak, fragile states like the Taliban regime, the Gaddafi regime, those are the easiest to overthrow, particularly for um, the United States. But the downside of regime change in these types of countries are likely to be, uh, are likely to be the greatest. So I think we'll leave, we'll leave it with that. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you for that. And with that, we will uh, welcome back Eugene Goltz. And apparently there are extra slides, so maybe he would yeah. like to talk about those. Yeah. Here yeah. Good. I think I should talk about energy security rather than FERC's. Um, uh, I, I know more about it, I'll say. Um, uh, thank you again. I'm sorry to uh, subject you to listening to me yammering um, twice in one morning. That's not right. But um, it, it uh, uh, is, is, is coming up for now because um, uh, almost 10 years ago now, I, I uh, uh, wrote a Cato policy analysis with a, a close friend and, and colleague, Daryl Press, on uh, energy security called Energy Alarmism. Um, it's available on the Cato website. Uh, I think it has some good things to say. Um, but as part of this project, um, since I was doing the other paper, they asked me, why don't you update the earlier Cato paper as a smaller effort, but we really need to, um, you know, somewhere in the case for restraint, we should engage questions about energy security. And some things have changed in the last 10 years, so I don't know, you were lucky enough to draw me again. Um, and, you know, the, the, the uh, or unlucky, the bottom line about the, uh, about the, situation with energy security is that the United States has energy security. We are tremendously energy secure. And, um, but it's not because of our grand strategy. It's not because of 
our efforts to uh, police the world, run the world, use military deployments overseas. The source of our fundamental sources of our energy security have to do with the way markets work and the way that the constellation of potential threats to energy security have changed, have evolved around the world, such that there is very low threat today and markets deal with the threat quite well, such that there's not much for the US militarily to do. And in fact, the US military is a very poor policy tool for affecting the threats that still uh, exist, right? So um, there is the, the argument for restraint with respect to energy is there's, there's nothing to do. Um, okay, maybe I've got it backwards. Yeah, there we go. Okay, I'm not pushing hard enough. Um, so uh, uh, you also get a different style of talk for me today because now you know I, before I just had notes now I've got pictures some graphs uh, trying to mix it up. Um, uh, I think that you know as as uh, uh, Alex and John started with I should uh, tell you what uh, what we're, what it is we're talking about. Energy security to me means something. Uh, Fairly specific, the, the casual definition is that we want access to reliable, cheap energy. Um, that's also fairly close to the International Energy Agency's uh, official definition of energy security. Um, the International Energy Agency is an international organization. It's kind of a club of large consuming countries. Um, uh, it's not a big surprise that when you ask a bunch of consumers what they think would make them energy secure, they say they want the price to be low as part of the definition of security. Um, uh, I think it would be great as a large consuming country if the price were low. And in fact, of course, the price is generally low right now for, for oil. But I don't think that's, I think that's too broad a definition of energy security because there are lots of factors in the market of supply and demand, of climate change regulation, or any number of other things that will affect the long-term baseline price of oil. That's not a security threat. That's a set of policy decisions and market interactions. The security threat is political military disruption or intentional manipulation of energy markets to hurt another country. That's, you would have low energy security if you were threatened by short-term price spikes um, due to a, 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 a war or a, um, a, a political decision by other countries to try to hurt you by jacking up the price of oil very quickly. And so energy security would defend against that. So I, I, I'm not here to tell you what I think the, you know, the US doesn't have energy security because the price of oil is, is low and I can't forecast the future of energy prices. What I can tell you is we are unlikely to be victimized by a sudden spike due to political military factors, the kinds of things that we would seek to protect against using military policy tools, using the tools of grand strategy. So um, what people tend to have in mind when they talk about these energy security threats um, uh, is that uh, some country of the, of the uh, world um, uh, embargoes the, the United States, says we're not going to sell you oil anymore, and it jacks up the price, or that there's a, a war, a civil war or an international war among oil suppliers that prevents them from selling oil to the United States, and or 
frankly, to the whole world, and it suddenly drives up oil prices, which hurts American prosperity. And because oil is such an important and, uh, uh, part of the American economy, and demand for it is so inelastic, it's, it's, kind of, it's not easy for us to adjust to a sudden price spike, and so we kind of have to suck up the pain of the price spike. And, um, uh, and that would hurt the United States in such a way that we would have an interest in protecting ourselves from that disruption, which could hurt our prosperity in a very, excuse me, in a very serious way. Um, and so that's kind of the conventional wisdom. And the under, my underlying response to that, or my key response, the theory that underlies the response, is that actually markets generally adapt, right? So when there is a supply interruption somewhere in the world, other suppliers increase their output to make up for the disrupted supply that goes off the market, and you get a new pattern of who sells to whom, but there is you know, supply and demand adapts. People don't just give up. They don't say, oh, um, we can't buy oil from Venezuela because Venezuela has just descended into the pit of despair and is no longer producing any oil. Therefore, we will simply not buy any oil today. What we say instead is, oh, we can't get our oil as easily from Venezuela as we used to. Maybe if we ask the Colombians nicely or offer them a nickel extra, they'll sell us some oil instead. And the Colombians will gratefully say, we'd love to take your nickel, and they increase their output. And there's a compensating reaction in the market. And it takes some time, and price goes up some, and there's a, a set of, of adjustments that take place that impose costs during the period of disruption. And so the question is, how fast does the market compensate and how much cost is there imposed on a consuming country like the United States before we get back to kind of a normal equilibrium? Right? How bad is that disruption and, and, and impact on US prosperity in the short term? And the answer turns out to be empirically, it's, it's actually not very bad. And um, the market works quite well in response. And so there's not that much that we need to do. But so that's kind of where we're going, is we're going to assess that question of how the market reacts to supply disruptions. Now, underpinning um, the view of how this works is a fairly widely understood view of how the, or widely agreed view of how the global market works today, which is that there is one great pool of oil, that there's not specific bilateral ties. It doesn't matter very much at the overall market level what an individual producer sells to an individual consumer. Everyone, in essence, who's producing oil is dumping oil into one giant pool or one giant bathtub fill of oil and filling it up. And everyone who consumes oil is draining constantly from that same bathtub. So there's some sort of general float. There's oil sloshing around in the world in inventories that private companies hold, that sometimes governments hold. There's just oil sloshing around the world market. It's in transit, wherever it is. And people are putting more oil into the market, and people are constantly taking oil out of the market. So you can see on this you know, uh, uh, graph that one of my graduate students drew, um, a graphic. Uh, uh, it's kind of fun. Um, you have. Uh, um, the United States and China taking out large quantities of oil from the global market because we consume a lot. Other countries, of course, also take out oil. And we've drawn some of the biggest countries that are putting oil into that global market. And you know, if Saudi Arabia's spigot thins out a little bit, if they close it off, if something goes wrong, 
there's the potential for Russia or the US or other countries all around the world. Every country around the world that produces oil could produce just a little more and kind of make up for some of the disruption, right? The compensating effects because everyone has their, their control on a valve. And the question is how fast and how much do they want to turn that valve? Now, for many years, there was worry that the market in oil is not a normal market. There's this cartel, OPEC. And um, OPEC uh, sometimes is kind of friendly, and sometimes they're kind of not friendly. And people were afraid that OPEC would exploit crises, or in a way, the whole point of a cartel is to mute market dynamics, right? What is a cartel doing? They're trying to throttle back supply to jack up the price. And so people were afraid that the oil market wouldn't respond to supply shocks the way a regular market, like wheat or, or textiles, shoes, whatever, respond to a shock. You know, if, if New Balance gets in trouble, Adidas will probably sell more shoes. Um, but maybe OPEC would choose not to do that. And so they, there was a bunch of, of, of interest in how OPEC worked. And um, I think it turns out that um, OPEC actually is hurt by shocks. OPEC's ability to come to an agreement, to a negotiation where every country of the world, or every country who's in OPEC has to agree to a complex formula of who's gonna produce what in the oil market, of a planned oil market. Well, every time there's a shock, either to demand or supply, they have to renegotiate. They have to have a meeting and decide, oh, Saudi Arabia is producing a little less, so Iran gets to produce a little more, and what about Nigeria and Venezuela? And every time they have to have a negotiation, it's an opportunity to have a falling out, right? To not be able to reach agreement on how best to jack up the price of oil. And every time there's a shock, every country wants to be the one that produces the extra barrels to make up for the shock in the market. Every country in OPEC has an incentive to produce extra. And so they all lie. And every time there's a shock, OPEC's cohesion weakens. And they produce more, and the price goes down. It reduces OPEC's ability to screw countries like the United States. So stability in the oil market helps OPEC reach its cartel price. And instability every time there's a change in the dynamic, makes it hard for OPEC to exploit the West. And so that was true for a long time. And you could see it. So here's five of the major oil disruptions in the OPEC era and how barrels of oil on the market responded. So there's now been a sixth, the Libya war. And I, I, I didn't have a chance to put together the little graph uh, um, uh, equivalent for this. But um, these are, on the x-axis, you see months uh, of, of response time. And the, the two lines on the graph, the dark line, which is always the higher line, is the global market supply of oil as a percentage of where it was the day before the disruption. And the lower line, the lighter line, is the specific supply in the disrupted country. So remember, countries that, whose oil supply is disrupted are they want the revenue back. So they're as eager as they could be to start producing more, but it's hard for them to get back because they face the disruption, they face the, the shock. But other countries of the world compensate. Um, and so you get the um, uh, actual oil supply on the market gets back 
to its pre-shock equilibrium over just a couple of months in five out of six cases, actually it's uh, uh, six out of seven because it's true in Libya as well. So the only case where you didn't get a very quick market response is the one on the top right, that's the Iranian Revolution of 1979, and it had its own complex dynamics. But most of the time, the market does uh, bounce back. Um, this is a different graphic. This shows the worst possible scenario that for a while people could imagine, which was a war between two major oil producers. So Iran and Iraq went out at hammer and tongs over you know, eight years in the 1980s, and they were doing their best to disrupt each other's oil exports. And you look at the total oil on the market. It went down at the beginning. That's the bar graph. But then it came back up, does OK. You know, global production does okay after the war, and it's, uh, through, the, through the timing of the war. And the other graph is the price of oil. And what you see actually happened is, through the war, while they're doing their best to disrupt it, the price of oil drops a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and then falls off a cliff. And that's the politics of OPEC, right? It's that they couldn't react to the disruption, the enmity within OPEC. They couldn't reach a new deal on who was going to produce what. And so the price of oil didn't on a sustained basis go through the roof when there was a disruption. The price of oil went through a brief spike and then went down, right? So, so the United States doesn't need to worry that there'll be a long-term price effect of energy shocks. Now, the caveat to this is that, of course, OPEC may not actually control prices. Right? It might be that oil is more like a normal market. And in fact, this is what people say a lot about the present situation. They say OPEC has gotten weaker. And I'll talk about that a little more uh, in a moment. But the point is that cartel strength varies from time to time. Sometimes the cartel is working well, and you get situations like I was just describing, where the inability to negotiate in the cartel leads to overproduction and the price drops. Or sometimes, the cartel isn't working at all, and OPEC uh, uh, doesn't have an effect, and you get just a normal competitive oil market. Everyone is producing as much as they can and trying to make as much money in the oil market. And we know that if there's a disruption in a normal market, in the shoe market, or the soap market, or take your pick, when one producer produces a little less, other people produce more. And so the, the story of market compensation works pretty well. Now, people say today OPEC has no spare capacity. Right, that they're producing flat out. And so um, uh, there wouldn't be any uh, immediate reaction if there were a disruption today. Nobody has the ability. Their, their faucets are already all the way open. They can't open the spigot further. And that's possible. But it's also true that over time, what the cartel wants to do is create more spare capacity. So from time to time, the amount of spare capacity varies. So like right after the Libya shock, Libya's production went down. Other OPEC people turned on some of their spare capacity, so their spare capacity was producing and wasn't spare anymore for a little while. So spare capacity dropped, but then it came back as they adjusted to the new market situation and as Libya partially came back on the market. So over time, there's likely to be spare capacity. So where are we today? Well, it is true that it looks like OPEC is using most of its spare capacity today, right? They're having something which I don't understand very well, but they, they claim to be having a war over market share. Everybody wants to have high market share, to preserve their market share. So they're producing close to flat out today. And I don't, it doesn't strike me as a good strategy for them to do this, but countries do 
things at different times. This is what they're doing in, these, in this economic interaction. So they're already producing flat out. But from our perspective as a consumer, in essence, what they've done is they've pre-adapted to a shock, right? So the price today is lower than it, quote, should be in the cartel world where they're holding spare capacity off the market. And if there were a shock now that disrupted this production, the price would go up because nobody could quickly turn on new spare capacity to compensate for the shock. But we would basically just be back in the situation we were supposed to be in if OPEC's spare capacity was off the market today. Right? They've turned on the spare capacity anticipating a possible shock instead of waiting for the shock and then turning on the spare capacity. So the market is still working. The United States is not worse off or more threatened by energy security concerns because spare capacity is relatively low today. We're actually experiencing low oil prices, which is good for the United States. We're kind of in what looks like a competitive market. Like today, there's a, a famous oil economist named Philip Verlager who's, who uh, recently published a, a, a piece for investors where he talks about how oil is acting like wheat. It's just a competitive market out there for oil, and these markets adapt. So um, to quickly, in my last two minutes, say a couple words about the military policy tool. So I've sort of tried to reassure you that the United States has energy security because of the market, that when there's a shock, the market adapts, and we're going to be OK. But then you could ask yourself, well, what about those couple of months? Shouldn't we be worried about the cost of that disruption for a couple of months? Could we use the military to prevent that? And um, the situation is, is no, because um, uh, the three things that militarily might cause these kind of shocks are conquest, where one OPEC member conquers another OPEC member and solves the bargaining problem because they own all the oil and they act like a monopolist and raise the price. But today, no military power, no oil producer has the power to conquer others. Right? It used to be that Iraq might have been in the game or Iran might have been in the game. But these countries have very little offensive military power today. The US doesn't have to defend against them. Um, some people worry about intentional interruptions, uh, attacks on oil tankers in, in key straits like Hormuz, um, or attacks on, on key oil infrastructure facilities like the, the big Saudi plant at Abqaiq. These turn out to be very difficult technically. It's hard to damage permanently oil infrastructure. It's hard to target your, your weapons very well at them. And then the last thing is, well, what if there were a strike and, or, or a civil war in an oil producer, something that would cause a major disruption, that um, that could really take a lot of barrels off the market. So if there were a civil war in Saudi Arabia or Russia, countries are in the United States, countries that produce 10 million barrels a day, that could really disrupt the market. So you have to ask yourself, could the military, the US military, do something productive to stop civil wars that would significantly disrupt oil production in major oil producers? Like, could it be a US military mission to prevent the civil war in Saudi Arabia or in Russia? And I think you have to say no, right? So, so the US intervening in a Russian civil war in a country with nuclear weapons, with a real army, fortunately, there's not going to be a Russian civil war. But if there were, that sounds really much more exciting than I'm looking forward to. Like the US policy of intervening to cause Russian oil production just sounds you know, disastrous. And you have the same sort of situation in Saudi Arabia. Our experiences that were very bad at this is a picture of a, of a guy trying to protect an Iraqi oil facility. Um, US military guys uh, can't protect 
oil facilities or force them to produce very well because we don't understand the local political dynamics. It takes us into the uh, democratization and FERC uh, territory that my colleagues have talked out, talk, talked about. So we really don't have the ability. The military policy tool is very bad for preventing the civil war that could actually threaten oil supplies. So my message, energy markets mostly take care of themselves. US military strategy has a vanishingly small contribution to making the situation better. And um, uh, uh, we should stop trying, because our efforts to try are partly you know, John's question, John Mueller's question in the first session about US reckless driving. We actually have a, a habit of making the situation worse, not better, when we try to intervene. Thank you. Great, thank you. Um, and so now we'll turn it over to Charles Glazer for some commentary on these papers. They have a complicated little timing system up here, and according to it, I'm already two minutes over. So um, it turned out Eugene lost time because these guys went over. And uh, okay, so um, so I'm going to. Um, make some comments on the papers. And there's also a third paper for this aspect of the project, which is on the impact of um, technology, essentially, on geography and distance. And so um, I'll talk about all of them. But I'm actually not going to do real adequate justice to the papers, um, because I'm going to try to place them in the broader context of the grand strategy debate, and then explain how they fit into various or provide the foundation for various pieces of it. Um, so I'm going to start by making a distinction which are, are raising a set of distinctions which I think have been lost so far in the, in the discussion today or in the categorization, which seems the grand strategy debate, as it's talked about right now, at least in this conference, but also increasingly around town, as between liberal hegemony on the one hand and restraint on the other. And it turns out, I think it's useful to divide that debate into at least two somewhat separable dimensions. Um, the first is really the liberal dimension, which has to do primarily maybe with spreading democracy, but also has to do with protection of human rights, um, maintaining open markets, and maybe to um, a lesser extent, but for some people very importantly, humanitarian intervention. So that's the liberal piece of the liberal hegemony. And the other part of the, of the hegemony um, is the geopolitical piece, which are, is pr protecting those areas of the globe that we understand to be vital to US national interest. Some people would say that the liberal dimensions are. Most people actually would not, but say that they're important parts of US foreign policy or grand strategy. So the point I want to make is that they're not entirely, but they're largely separable. And so you can reject the liberal dimension and nevertheless not favor restraint in the sense that you want to maintain current US alliances very much at the levels that we have. And on the flip side, you could actually reject current US alliances, reject the current need for the um, maintaining US interest in three essential parts of the globe, but nevertheless say you thought it was worth pursuing the liberal agenda, including using force um, to advance it. So it turns out that given that, there's actually two dimensions, or you could say two spectrums, along which you can reasonably disagree, and it gives us a variety of possible grand strategies. Restraint is actually, in some ways, is not well-defined. It's a somewhat ambiguous term. Um, different people use it different ways. It largely means don't pursue the liberal agenda and 
don't maintain the current alliances, at least with large forward deployed forces. Um, but even within that, there's some variation. Okay, so um, the first point I would make then is that um, obviously that the um, Downs and Mountain piece obviously argues against the liberal dimension of the grand strategy um, of the liberal hegemony piece. It argues in an important way that it's not impossible, but it's that force needs to be used very cautiously and under very narrow conditions if what you want to do is spread democracy um, because it's valuable to the United States. I'm not going to even go into the issue of why spreading democracy might be valuable, but you should be extremely cautious. The opportunities are rare, and the cases that we have faced recently um, are poor prospects. And the United States, therefore, has misstepped and is likely to misstep in the future if it continues to pursue that aspect of the agenda. Um, their paper, importantly, does not argue, it's not a criticism, it's just narrow, it, it does not argue that there are not other things the United States can do with its foreign policy to advance democracy. And so in a full analysis, you'd want to say, well, maybe force isn't good, but if democracy is valuable, either for because it makes the world safer for the United States, makes the world safer for other people, makes the world better for other people, you might still want to pursue other aspects of promoting democracy, um, which some of which might not be familiar as democracy promotion, but what actually could be simply economic development, which has many values or many features that are desirable besides democracy. So their argument is very important, but is narrowly on the military use of force to promote the liberal agenda and specifically the democracy agenda. Um, and I think on that case, I mean, I'm not an expert on their topic, but it seems to me that they've brought together a huge amount of literature um, and have a very sophisticated conditional argument about um, the limitations. I would add, I'm not going to go into it in detail, but within that liberal agenda, you could decide there are certain things you don't want to do, like democracy promotion through the use of force, but other things that you do want to do. You could say, but I do want to use force um, for, humanita for humanitarian reasons, that I'm willing to intervene in civil wars to protect lives, but not willing to use force for democracy promotion. That's also part of the liberal agenda. And then we'd have to study how effective that would be. So to take the liberal agenda or the liberal dimension out of the grand strategy, you would want to look carefully at each of its pieces, and you'd want to divide them on the military dimension as well as the non-military ways of achieving those objectives. Another major piece, um, the other major dimension, of course, is, or is the, the, I think, the more familiar dimension or the more familiar piece of the grand strategy debate, which is the geopolitical debate. Um, and here there's quite a broad spectrum, and there's some gray within the categories. So at one end of the spectrum, you would actually have what I think was traditionally called, at one point was called primacy, which is different than liberal hegemony, which would actually be expanding US geopolitical influence um, through the use or the threatened use of force. Um, not for liberal purposes, but to actually control more of the globe. But then moving along that spectrum, you would have um, what was in a previous round of the grand strategy debate called selective engagement which is committing the United States to protecting certain key parts of the world. Traditionally, there have been three that were identified, and explicitly not protecting others. So it was explicitly protecting Western Europe, and during the Cold War, Western Europe, East Asia, specifically Japan and South Korea, and then the Gulf. And so the United States was going to selectively commit to those, but not to other regions of the world and not the liberal agenda. But then you can move further along, you could say, um, or at least some people would characterize as well, then you can also have offshore balancing. And then you could have restraint, which is different than offshore balancing, um, 
although in some people use it the same way. And then at the end of the spectrum, you have neo-isolation, where you, you, don't, you basically cut your alliance ties. Some of restraint cuts those ties. Some of those restraint is sort of offshore balancing. Some of restraint is sort of reluctant onshore balancing with a little bit of offshore balancing. So there's a, but the point is there's a spectrum, all of which is sort of largely separable from the liberal agenda. And the question then is, what pieces of information or sort of foundational analysis are required to decide where you want to be along the geopolitical spectrum? The paper that, there was a third paper that I mentioned, which was the one um, by Patrick Porter, um, and it was on the implications of distance. And he's engaging in the argument that basically advances in technology and globalization and interdependence have somehow shrunk the globe and as a result have reduced US security. His argument is that when you look at military and technical factors, essentially, the current technology essentially expands the globe or putting it or stretches the globe, meaning that where states are even more secure as a result of distance than they used to be. And there, he makes two arguments, which in a very sophisticated way, but are both somewhat familiar. One is that nuclear weapons provide tremendous security for states that have them, even if you're close to an adversary but even more security if you're far away from an adversary. And then second, the current conventional technologies make it easier for states to defend themselves against power projection. And so while we can, states are very capable, more capable, wealthy states, especially the United States, of projecting power at great distance, um, it's also harder to use that um, power um, to attack distant countries because the technologies that oppose those power projection capabilities are increasingly effective. And so in specific cases that intelligence um, and reconnaissance capabilities as well as precise targeting make it, or make, could make it increasingly hard for the United States to fight along China's periphery. And that actually increases Chinese security. You might go, oh, well, that hurts US security. Well, it depends on how you define US security. If you're talking about protecting the US against attack, it also would protect us against a conventional attack as do nuclear weapons. Um, so you can say to yourself, just trying to, trying to tie the papers into this sort of geopolitical debate here, how does that influence where you would stand on this geopolitical spectrum from primacy on the one hand through selective engagement, offshore balancing, restraint, and neo-isolation? The answer, unfortunately, is not really, is not really simple or obvious. Um, a few things that were clear, though, which is that, um, and I should just say that his paper in some ways fits in very tightly with earlier discussion of the security dilemma in the offense-defense balance. He doesn't use this terminology much, but basically what he's arguing is that technology, conventional and nuclear, is increasingly favoring defense, and obviously and distance has traditionally favored um, defense. So the world is increasingly defense-advantaged, um, even for states that are relatively close, but even more so for states that are far apart. In terms of the traditional logic, the geopolitical logic, this defense advantage um, favors reducing alliances um, or thinning alliances or even breaking alliances because what it means is narrowly, if you look just at US security, the United States is incredibly secure against attack from the outside because of things that have been talked about. Actually, Eugene had a paper, I don't know, more years ago than I like to remember now. Um, but you know, basically says the oceans protect us, nuclear weapons protect us, technology protects us. In the 20 intervening years, technology even protects us more. Um, so the United States is incredibly secure. If you're incredibly secure, why do you have why do you need allies at all? The traditional logic of allies in Europe and Asia 
was it a European hegemon or an Asian hegemon would threaten the United States? Given that, we needed to bring peace to those regions to avoid hegemony for our own security. If defense has an overwhelming advantage, you don't need to do that. And that would really call, um, or in its most simple form formulation, for cutting the alliances and being neo-isolationist. And I think that's how that argument goes. It's not so clear how the offense-defense arguments influence the choice, let's say, between offshore balancing and selective engagement. Um, a key thing and very interesting thing about both of those, selective engagement, which is close to traditional geopolitical strategy for the United States, not the liberal dimension, um, and selective engagement is that they understand the world in strikingly similar terms, which is that regional hegemons are a threat to the United States. The choice between offshore balancing and selective engagement is much more of a tactical choice about how to prevent hegemons from arising but they see hegemons as threats, regional hegemons as threats to US security. Neo-isolationists don't. Their view is that the defense advantages are sufficiently great that the United States will be secure, um, independent of the rise of a hegemon. Restrainers, depending upon the variety, I think are sort of caught a little bit in between. Um, the choice then becomes partly on other dimensions. If you're in this view that hegemons are bad, then you might say, I want to be offshore or not to save money. I might want to be onshore to maintain credibility. I might want to be onshore to prevent proliferation. I actually tend to, just going back to one of the earlier papers, I'm not nearly as confident as Brendan that, that cutting our alliances would not lead to proliferation in a, in a number of countries. Whether it would be bad, that's a whole other issue. But I think that Japan will become a nuclear power, for instance, if the United States cut its um, commitments in East Asia. OK, so that's the second key distinction I want to make, just the geopolitical piece and how do you decide it. But then even within, even within the geopolitical piece, there are other very important distinctions, because the geopolitical piece is made up of decisions about commitments to specific regions. Um, and the three key regions, as I've mentioned, have been Europe, Asia, Western Europe, but now Europe, Asia, and the Gulf. Eugene's paper is obviously and clearly about the Gulf. And what I want, the point I want to make is that each of these regions are different and distinct, related, but different and distinct in terms of the geopolitical logic that might keep the United States in those regions. The Gulf is most distinct. The first point to make about the Gulf is, is it's almost entirely about US prosperity. The threat in Asia and Europe, as traditionally understood, is about a threat to US security. The concern that a hegemon in those regions would under, could undermine US security. That's not currently the danger in the Gulf. It might have been in the Cold War when the loss of access to oil from the Gulf could have undermined NATO's ability to fight in the Central Front. So it was a link between, there was a potential security link. Now, when you heard it in Eugene's comments, it's all about, the Gulf is all about prosperity, which I think is correct. There's not, if we lost access to Gulf oil, there's a huge cutoff of Gulf oil. The United States is not, and its allies did not become militarily vulnerable due to the loss of that oil, at least at first order, but we could have rather severe economic consequences. So the important thing about framing the Gulf that way is that we can think about it more easily in terms of a cost-benefit type of analysis than you could think about Asia and Europe, because we can ask ourselves, what is the potential economic damage of various types of disruptions that the military helps us avoid, and what's the cost 
of the United, to the United States of protecting the, the reliable flow of Gulf oil. Um, it's much harder to do that when you're thinking about security because you don't know, how, it's hard to value the security. Um, so that's the first point. The second point I would say is that um, there are a number of reasons to think that the, that the United States is relatively insensitive to disruptions of Gulf oil. Eugene talked about markets. I would mention others, some of which I learned from him. So it's not in any way a main addition. But one is there are also there are huge reserves that serve as a buffer. So since the 1970s, we've protected ourselves against disruptions. The United States economy is much less energy intensive than it was three decades ago, so that whatever um, the impact on prices happens to be, the impact of price on US GDP is smaller. Um, so a variety of ways that um, we are, are relatively insensitive. Now, I think that court, con compared to the conventional wisdom, Eugene um, has probably underplayed most people's views of the implications of a disruption. You know, he's looked at, and I'm not going to try to settle this debate, but just to put it on the table, he's looked at how quickly the flow of oil is restored. Economists have looked at it, though, at, not at the flow of oil, but at the econo economic impact of that disruption of oil. And they find a fairly high correlation between those disruptions that were on his graph and US recessions. And there's a huge, fancy, mind-straining econometric debate about exactly the, you know, the causal effect. But some people believe that you can have really large implications. So you'd have to get into that. But I'm not going to try to resolve that. My point here is to say that it's about economics. We'd have to look at those pieces. A bit of advertising. A colleague and I, Rose Kalanick, have a book that will be out in August, actually, that tries to break this and Eugene has a chapter in there, tries to break this question into its pieces and ask, are the economic benefits of protecting the reliable flow of oil um, warranted? Um, OK, so you'd, I would just say, once again, to press Eugene, he says one of the implications of his finding is that we should lighten our footprint in the Gulf. My question to him would be, why lighten our footprint? Why not leave? What, what, are, you, what are you leaving? forces there that you're going to flow back to to protect in the Gulf. His argument looks to me, I mean, I can argue the other side of it, but his argument would sort of say, we don't need to be in the Gulf. And he could give me a whole bunch of other reasons why we don't need to be in the Gulf. So his, 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 his argument about restraint in the sense of doing less, having a lighter footprint, not being forward deployed, or is a natural conclusion, drop the commitment, which is a fundamentally different position. Um, I guess my last point is I just want, I'll talk about East Asia. I sort of lost track of the time because I've got this note and then I've got this other timer and I have a bad memory so I don't know which one is right. Um, but I'll just say China is an interesting case because if you think about the traditional logic of the geopolitical commitment, the geopolitical commitment was to keep Eurasia, Europe, and Asia divided so that no single country would have the resources sufficient to challenge the United States. And then you can say, OK, so if you have that logic, then we should maintain our commitment to Japan and South Korea. Because if China came to conquer those countries, it would have the resources to challenge the United States, if you have that view. China raises an interesting possibility that was not really a possibility. It was on the table with the Soviet Union, which is it's possible that China, if it grows successfully, and there's all kinds of, ar kinds of arguments why it won't, but China actually has the potential to grow without expansion to be so large that it, it meets the standards that we would talk about as being a peer competitor to the United States and one that could actually challenge the United States without expansion. And so if you really believe that argument, you could ask, is the current US commitment to the region sufficient 
to offset the potential, not hegemonic power, but overwhelming power of China. And the counterargument would be, well, you know, Japan will tie China down, South Korea will tie China down. And the counterargument could be not very much um, if it gets to be two or three times US GDP, which it actually has the potential resources for. So I just say, as we think through, you know, we've sort of taken a lot of things from the Cold War, we apply them in various ways or throw them away in various ways. But it could be that even maintaining the selective engagement type logic is not sufficient if you're worried about a, re a very powerful state that's maybe not a hegemon in the sense that there are no other major powers, but is completely a dominant power. Um, the distance argument could argue against that, but um, people have worried about a peer competitor in the face of distance and technology for a long time. So there is room there, I think, to worry if you have that, if you have that position. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Great. So uh, thanks to everybody for those interesting papers and comments. Um, and I think, as Charlie Glazer noted, the um, you know interesting pieces of evidence um, to consider as we start to talk about what US grand strategy in the future should be. And I know the panels this afternoon will touch more broadly on some of these issues. So um, we have some time for Q&A. Um, please do wait to be called upon um, and wait for the microphone so everybody listening online can hear you. And we apply the Jeopardy rule here at Cato. Make sure your question is in the form of a question. <laughs> Let's start here in the second row, the uh, striped jumper. Hi, my name is Contessa Bourbon from the New York Times. I'd like to ask the panelists, how do you assess President Obama's policy? He appears restrained as he didn't intervene militarily in Syria, but he intervened in Libya. So how do you assess it and what are the implications of his actions? I'll just say very quickly, um, uh, it's pretty mixed. I don't think Obama did restraint. I think he was more restrained than the Washington consensus was pushing him towards. I think, you know, he talked about this in his, in the Long Atlantic uh, 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 interview, among other places, right? So, um, you know, there were a bunch of people in Washington who thought he should intervene a lot more than he did, and he tried to resist, but he didn't want to go to, he, he didn't go so far as um, to, to adopt what I think we would call restraint on either the non-intervention or the alliance, you know, get, getting out of alliances um, components of what you might think of as what, what Charlie laid out as the formal uh, uh, definition of, you know, the coherent strategy um, of restraint. Uh, I'll also just say to Charlie quickly, I think we should leave the Gulf, right? It's, I'll just be clear. Anyway, but these guys might have a different comment about Obama. That say something on this. Yeah. I I think, um, at least with respect to you know the question of regime change, he, yeah, he has been. I, th I think he has been pretty restrained. I mean, he clearly shares our view, Alex, my view, of the outcomes of the regime change operations in Iraq and Af Afghanistan. I mean, it seemed to me. Um, I guess he kind of gave in to the temptation of the sort of low cost, what appeared to be a low cost, low risk operation in Libya. Um, but he's also been under enormous pressure to do more in Syria and hasn't. And as I said, I think. Um, 
you know, we've, we sort of have this verbal commitment to regime change in Syria at the moment that we might benefit from rolling back a little bit. But yeah, he's certainly been restrained in doing, in doing less. Um, I guess uh, Obama for sure um, has been more restrained than his predecessor was, right? Um, but he still, for example, did Libya. But the lesson he thought he learned, I think, from, uh, from the Bush administration was, well, you don't want to be left holding the bag. Right, so let's go in in a different way, um, uh, in a much lighter footprint way, where we're not uh, committing our own uh, ground forces for uh, for regime change and then for occupation or remaining for a long period of time. Um, the outcome there was still regime change, but uh, you still got a, a total disaster uh, afterwards. Um, and it's a you know it's an open question whether that's a it's better in the sense that, you know, Americans, for the most part, were not dying uh, in Libya. Uh, but in terms of outcomes, uh, it's still a basket case. Um, for Syria, right, he's, he's, I think Obama's really pushed back against what I think is intense pressure to get more involved uh, uh, and intervene more heavily uh, in Syria. Um, you know, he did sort of, you know, make this rhetorical gesture, you know, uh, Assad must go, right? You need to step aside, right? As if that's going to achieve anything on its own. Um, uh, and so there's been this sort of rhetorical commitment to regime change, but a sort of unwillingness to really, uh, you know, back that up with, with anything serious. Now, now that's sort of ramped up over time because I think Obama's had a much harder time resisting the pressure to, to get involved as Syria's gone further down the toilet bowl. Um, but now... Uh, I, I'm not sure there's a policy of regime change in Syria anymore. I mean, the United States has been basically pushed into a tacit alliance uh, with the Assad regime, right, because of the rise of the Islamic State. Um, so it's not even clear to me what, uh, you know, we're trying to sign people up to f say they'll fight against the Islamic State but not against the Assad regime. What does that tell me? Well, it's that we're not uh, that interested in getting rid of uh, Assad anymore. So... Yeah, that's, I think, he's been pushed by the force of circumstances even uh, to a, a more restrained posture in terms of Syrian intervention. And I would just say, I don't think we should leave um, Afghanistan out of the comments. I, I actually think the largest mistake along these choices that the Obama administration made was to actually a very large buildup in Afghanistan right when he, early in his first year. Um, and. It was, a, it was a, a very complicated compromise, which was almost designed to fail in a way because it was a very hard mission um, with not, resources that were not quite adequate and not for long enough. Um, and so, I mean, we'll see, I'll see, see how that plays out. But that's actually where he made his lar the largest commitment of U.S. forces um, and the most costly one. And um, that was, I don't think it was actually contentious at the time, given the, the, the election and so forth, but it turned out to be a quite a major decision. Yes. Okay, uh, up there at the back, uh, gentleman in the blue shirt, black suit. Yes. Thanks. Uh, Aidan Miller from the Carnegie Endowment South Asia Program. Uh, two questions for Alex and John, uh, which will be very brief. One, uh, how does your verdict on FERC map onto restraint as a strategy? 
essentially understanding FERC as an operational level choice. There's a lot of room between not doing this particular kind of operation and a more comprehensive strategy of restraint, uh, as Charlie Glazer outlined it. Uh, do you think that it's the temptation would be higher when you've got these forward deployments, or is it some other mechanism that you're looking at? And then second, do you think the type of institutional change matters? I know that this is drilling down to a really, really small number of cases, but just from your observations, uh, comparing things like debathification in Iraq to denazification in West Germany, does the character of institutional change have any bearing on the outcome of the type and stability of democracy? Uh, very interesting questions. Thank you. Um, on the first one, um, I think uh, I thought uh, Charlie made a very uh, good set of comments and a good way of sort of thinking about uh, these issues. And it's a point I meant to, to say in my in my comments was we're you know addressing a relatively narrow piece of the possible instruments that one could use to achieve various policies in the world, which is the use of military force uh, to overthrow foreign governments in the pursuit of a policy of uh, democracy promotion. Um, we're not saying that there aren't other ways to do that. Uh, we do think uh, that our findings are very consistent with what one finds when, when you look at uh, very related uh, but slightly different uses of force, whether it be nation building or whether it be other forms of military intervention. They tend to, to follow the same dynamics, which are not good ones. Um, we're not saying about uh, that you know, democracy isn't worth promoting or is not worth promoting in other ways with non-military tools. Um, uh, people can sort of go back and forth on that, um, but we're sort of looking at the more narrow uh, military piece of the question. Um, so, but in terms of, I think, the use of military force, we dovetail quite nicely with the restraint strategy um, uh, in that we're, you know, uh, finding that uh, using military force in this particular way, and I can speak from my other research on, on regime change as well, tends to have just a sort of litany of, of unfortunate and costly consequences both for the intervener and for the place where the regime change occurs. Um, I think, yes, having forward deployments around the world facilitates that uh, ability to intervene, if you're the United States anyway, which maintains those kind of deployments. So on the margin, right, you tie your hands a little bit uh, by pulling some of those back, but the the capability is inherent in the in the United States, whether it has forces deployed abroad or not. Do you want to comment on that second question, or? Um, yeah, yeah. I I think the um, I mean we as Alice described, we have a fairly broad category of what we call institutional um, foreign and post regime changes, and and that really incorporated any intervention in which um, the intervener, like the United States, took some steps to um, build or reform the sort of post. FERC um, state, either by um, building new democratic institutions, holding elections, whatever it may be. Um, one interesting thing about, I, I guess, maybe the case of Iraq, so you mentioned the debathification thing as compared to denazification or a similar program in Japan. I, you know, yeah, I think the difference was that in those earlier cases, the U.S. made a deliberate strategic choice to preserve the power of the state and the bureaucratic power of the state in those countries, and that turned out to be advantageous um, in terms of democratization, whereas in Iraq, um, some extent Afghanistan, um, the state basically collapsed. Um, so yeah, I guess that is sort of one additional distinction you could draw. Do you have a view on that? 
guess the only thing I would add is that denazification in Germany was, okay, yes, Nazis were purged, but many were rehabilitated, right? And many who uh, uh, were, you know, members of the bureaucracy and helped, you know, the state, such as it was after 1945 until the the birth of the FRG, uh, function, right? Uh, And continue in some form to exist. Um, What's happened lately is uh, some of these states are unlike uh, those past examples, and you push on them a little bit and they go splat, um, and when you add in a policy of, well, saying anyone who was, you know, associated with the former dictator by, you know, having to join their the party, which uh, you kind of had to do to be part of the bureaucracy, uh, is disqualified from, so anyone with any qualifications, get out, right? That's probably a problem. So uh, I think if you're, you know, in some ways less is more, right? You don't want to... Uh, you know, start from scratch, uh, as it were. But in many of these countries, it's very difficult because the dictator has made it his business to hollow out the state. Okay, yeah, let's take another question. Um, up here on the left-hand side, gentleman with the beard. Hi, Sagatom Saha, Council on Foreign Relations, and I deal with energy, so my question is going to be for Eugene. Uh, on your last slide, you had something about the SPR. So if not military action, I just want to tease that out. What are the other policy responses to uh, such a hedging oil price volatility? Thank you. Sure. So um, uh, just quickly on this, I think you know the, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is, is uh, quite large relative to the size of plausible oil shocks. So I think you know we've measured the, the international standards for deciding how many uh, barrels of oil to hold in your reserves are poorly, they, they are well, they, they are clearly defined, but the choice of the definition is poor. They are poorly defined in the sense that we do it based on uh, total imports of oil rather than based it on deciding how much reserve to hold relative to the size of plausible oil shocks. And when you measure um, the size of the American Strategic Petroleum Reserve compared to the size of plausible oil shocks. They're actually enormous, and we can use these strategic reserves to kind of tide us over while the market adapts, so that short period of disruption that I showed in the, in the graphs, where there is a certain time that oil prices are high and, and um, oil supply is low, you can essentially entirely make up that entire period of disruption by using strategic reserves. And then, of course, there's also private sector inventories. There are different kinds of policy initiatives you can do to make um, uh, the economic effects of of oil price change, of oil price variation, have less costs for um, uh, your economy, the the recessions that Charlie talked about. There are a whole set of other policies you could adopt that are, are... you know, largely relatively cheap, certainly compared to overall forward-deployed U.S. foreign military policy um, that would further, like, we already have energy security, and we could make it even better if we so chose. Um, And I'll put in a plug, like, I have this tiny little chapter, which is not a fantastic chapter, but Charlie's, the book that he mentioned called Crude Strategies that's coming out this summer, is really good on assessing the cost-benefit. Like, it's his assessment, and it's, I, I urge you all to read it. It's a really high quality book that talks about these other initiatives that we could take to insulate ourselves. Okay, let's take another question um, up the back there, in the back.
Hi, I'm uh, Robbie Glanville from uh, Institute of Humane Studies. Um, regarding the oil price shocks, um, you mentioned how the faucets tend to uh, change, who's putting it on, who's turning it off, depending on uh, um, if there is a shortage. And everybody jumps to be the one to turn on the faucet when there is. Um, but in uh, like today, we see that there is a heightened supply, which is also driving the price down. And everyone wants to keep their, their faucets on. Um, and you mentioned how that's good for consumers in the, in the economy in the U.S. However, uh, are there long-term implications, as we see now? Uh, we don't see as much with integrated companies, but with the smaller exploration and refinery companies in the U.S., now they'll be going to be uh, being driven out, uh, out of the market because of these low prices. And are there long-term implications that might increase a market share uh, for OPEC or for uh, domestic companies, integrated companies in the U.S. that could have long-term uh, dangers? Um, so, uh, I think, so your, your question is about, um, to rephrase it slightly in economic terms, are we observing essentially a predatory pricing episode where we drive certain competitive producers out of the oil market such that the people who will be left in the longer term are the state-owned oil companies in OPEC countries who will then exploit the United States viciously, um, or is that a, a risk that we would face? And, um, you know, again, economists in general think predatory pricing strategies very rarely work. Like, the, the problem is that you can drive people out of the market today, and when you try to raise the price, those people come back in the market later, right? So you haven't, so nothing that will happen in the oil market today will make people forget the geological surveys they've already done, or forget how to do fracking, or anything else if the oil price, you know, goes up in the future. So again, you can increase some sand in the gears of the, of how, you know, right now it seems like there's incredibly fast reaction from frackers uh, to to price blips going up, right? You know, we went up above $50 a barrel the other day, and suddenly a whole bunch of companies were like, oh, great, we'll go out and frack, because there's a, a, a backlog of equipment and people who are desperately hanging on to business, looking for every price uptick so they can instantly turn on their taps. And those people may someday get jobs as, I don't know, blackjack dealers in a casino and be a little bit slower to turn on the taps again in reaction to a future price spike, right? So, so it is possible that driving them out of the oil prospecting business temporarily into another job will, will make them a little slower to get back in the oil prospecting business next time around. But, um, but basically, it's pretty easy, given the oil infrastructure in the United States, for these people to flow in and out, like to run into the next oil boom in North Dakota, as we saw last time around. There's been a series of oil booms in North Dakota. Like There is quite a bit of flexibility, particularly in the American oil production, right? And so that helps drive down the time to market response and you know that time will vary depending on the specifics of each price shock. But I don't think there's any permanent change in the market that's happening that is likely to make it that the adjustment will be systematically slower, longer, more difficult in the future. There will be a response, um, uh, and we're talking at the margin of exactly how long that response would take. Okay, uh, we have time for, I think, one last question. Uh, yes, the gentleman here in the center. My name is Stephen Shaw. Wonderful presentations. My question is about the Pacific. One could say that since the 
Treaty of San Francisco in 1951. We have an implicit or, or sometimes explicit pol policy in the Pacific of American strategic hegemony. And it, we, it now is confronting a rising China that has resentments that for historical reasons uh, seem to them to be legitimate. And so this cannot help but put us in some conflict, hopefully manageable with China. So my question is, how can restraint be, uh, can, does restraint in the Western Pacific mean abandonment of the traditional American strategic hegemony since 1945? Uh, so I sense this is a question that the next panel might be better able to handle, but uh, if you'd like to. Um, well, so uh, I think that um, kind of one of the core ideas of restraint is that the US shouldn't have a global policeman role, right? So yes, restraint would, by nature of the strategic proposal, do what you say. We would stop having our hege hegemonic strategy, not just in the Pacific, but in other countries, in other areas of the world, too. Um, I think, I, to, be, to be clear about this, though, I think almost everyone, I, I, I would say everyone, but there might be some exception, and I don't want to, you know, anyway. But almost everyone who supports the strategy of restraint um, still believes that the United States should take steps to command the commons, the deep water, blue water areas of the Pacific Ocean that are not right up against other countries, right? So it's, it's relatively, um, well, it's not just relative, it's extremely cheap, particularly given the level of challenge that other countries are currently man, ma mounting in the commons, which is essentially zero, right? Other countries, China, for all their growth, is, is mounting a challenge right next to China in the contested zone off their own coast. They're not trying to compete off the coast of California. And um, uh, I think, you know, almost every strategic proposal says there is value in having, um, you know, protected global commons and it doesn't cost much and there are serious benefits to it. What we're talking about is should the United States try to put our thumb in the eye of other countries and uh, restraint says no. Yeah, this is a, a bit beyond my... Uh, ambit for this particular uh, panel, but uh, I think in response to your question, it would mean a, a ch it would mean a break with uh, sort of post World War II uh, U.S. policy in the in the Western Pacific. Um, but that itself is a major aberration uh, from <clears throat> policies the U.S. has adopted uh, in the past. Um, and I'll tell you a story. Once when I was uh, 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 TA back in grad school. Uh, we were debating whether the U.S. should, you know, maintain its commitment to defend Taiwan, and one of the students was quite adamant. He said, "We must. The United States must defend Taiwan because if we don't defend Taiwan, there'll be nothing between the United States and China." <laughs> and I like almost, you know, popped a jugular. I said, "Well, except the Pacific Ocean, right?" So. Uh, uh, keeping in mind that you know, yes, U.S. U.S. has commitments to to countries that are very much you know very close to China, very far from the United States. So it's not as if the United States scales back various commitments in the Western Pacific. That means all of a sudden we're defending you know in San Francisco Bay. Great, thank you. Um, so we are now going to adjourn for a luncheon. Um, it's upstairs in the George M. Yeager Conference Center, just up the spiral staircase outside. The restrooms are on the second floor on your way to the lunch. Um, and please join me in thanking our panelists.